If you would, turn to Deuteronomy 31. We're going to do something a little different this morning. Uh, if uh, this is your first time with us, welcome. We normally uh, move verse by verse, and we certainly will be doing that with 2 Timothy starting in April. But uh, this morning, I want to look at a very large section of text, which is a bit ambitious, and I probably will handle it not so well because there's so much to deal with. It's a bit painful. I just want to tease out some things that we see in these last chapters of the Pentateuch in Deuteronomy. As you know, we've been work, walking through the life of Moses. We started last fall and looked at his birth, and now we've moved now to his death. On these final words, I, I have a strange thing I like to do is I, I like to read tombstones and read people's last quotes. I find them humorous at times. Uh, provoking at others. But I thought I'd read to you, these are some last words from some, some you may know. Uh, Lady Nancy Astor stated, am I dying or is this my birthday? That's her last words. There you are. Uh, you've probably heard the words from Joan Crawford. She said, don't you dare ask God to help me. Those were her last words. So I fear that she may have gotten her wish. <laughs> Grover Cleveland said, I've tried so hard to do right, our president of the United States. And I love this Brazilian poet. He said, give me coffee. I'm going to write. <laughs> His last words. Isn't that great? Uh, Richard Harris, uh, he, he, he was being wheeled through the hotel, said, it was the food. Don't touch the food. <laughs> That's exactly what I would have said <laughs> coming out of the restaurant. Don't touch the food. Uh, Queen Elizabeth I stated all my possessions for a moment of time. And Dominic Willard said, why, yes. Uh, this was, he was given, you know, the last rites before they, uh, he was uh, a mobster. And they said just before his death, before the firing squad, he was asked if he had any last requests. He said, why, yes, a bulletproof vest. <laughs> so there you are. Well, these are the last words of Moses. And it's ironic, I guess, in one sense, that we'll be looking at the last words of Paul starting in April. But we have here two poems. We have a song of Moses, which many of you are very familiar with. That's in chapter 32. And then we also have the blessing of Moses, which is in chapter 33. What I wanted to do is just tease out some principles. We've been looking at the Moses and the Israelites, but what are some lessons or what are some things that Moses highlights in these final days on earth? As we can see in your notes, this is letter A. We'll just skip the, the chart. But first of all, he understands the importance of God's word. Notice in chapter, turn to 31, verse 24. When Moses finished writing on the scroll the words of the law in their entirety, he he commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the, the Lord's Covenant, take the scroll of the law and place it beside, not in, but beside the covenant, the Lord your God. It will be remain there as a witness against you. He's stressing the importance of the law and its presence in the people, for I know about your rebellion and stubbornness. Indeed, he should. <laughs> he says, even while I've been living among you to this very day, you've rebelled against the Lord. You will be even more rebellious after my death. It's not quite the parting words you want to hear, but your uh, Moses understands full well these people. 
that he has led. Gather by to me all your tribal er, uh, elders and officials so I can speak to them directly of these things and call the heavens and the earth to witness against them. He's going to teach them a song. He says in verse 30, Then Moses recited the words of this song from start to finish in the hearing of the whole assembly. They were to repeat this song from one generation to the next to remember. And it's, it's kind of a downer. It's not a real, whoo, you know, let's uh, <clears throat> charge hell with a water pistol. He says, Listen, O heavens, and I will speak here, O earth, the words of my mouth. My teaching will drop like the rain. My sayings will drop like the dew. And we'll get to this in a minute. He'll exalt the Lord, but then he'll talk about their rebellious state and that, that they are going to rebel and God will judge them. So the first thing, though, you see here is the stress of the word of God among the people. I have uh, Craigie's notes and his commentary on Deuteronomy. This is there in your notes. The song functioned, that is... The, these, this poem that Moses is giving to them as part of the witness to the renewal of the covenant. When the Israelites sang it, they would bear witness to their understanding and agreement to the full terms and implications of the covenant. By reciting it, they remember. It's interesting, in, in light of the importance of the word, he says one thing it does is past experience warned the need for the stress, the, the word's importance. In other words, what the word had given, they need to be reminded of. Think about our journey with the Israelites and Moses these last few months, right? Where have you seen the stress on the word? I, th I think of the golden calf incident, right? And then after that, and God restores him, he says, now listen, <laughs> uh, my word, the things that I tell you, it's going to be even far greater. Just bear with me. Just hang in there. And secondly, as we see the importance of the word of God, it, it deals with the present and the future their very existence and prosperity depends upon their adherence to the word. I mentioned this there in your notes, and there's several references through Deuteronomy. This is a occurring theme, right? It, all the way back from the time they left Egypt. God says, you, you do these things, you'll be great. If not, things are going to be going real south really quick. And it doesn't take us very long when we enter into the promised land that we see the problem when they don't adhere to the word of God. That is the sin of Achan, right? At Ai, taking treasure when they weren't supposed to. You know, the word of God for the believer is the only offensive weapon in the armory, right? All the other pieces, the breastplate, the helmet, none of them are offensive except the sword of the Lord. And remember that in text? The only other piece of armor, by the way, that's not listed there in Ephesians is the shin guard because the soldier's on his knee in prayer, I would argue. And prayer is mentioned several times. But the importance of the word of God in the life of the believer certainly is true. It was true then as well. And Moses understood that. And he understood the problem the people had in adhering to the word of the Lord and significantly by action, by placing it by the ark, it's a reminder, but also trying to commit this to memory. This song is one way of doing that. So what is Moses, what's his last words? One is to understand the importance of the word of God. Interesting, by the way, that's true in 2 Timothy. It's true in 2 Peter. The last words of, of Paul, the last words of Peter, both understood the importance of the word of God and stressed it highly. I remember... Um, 
Dr. Walvard, who was the chancellor at Dallas Seminary, where I attended uh, 50 years. He was either president or chancellor. That's a long time. And many would say that he's the one who, by God's grace, built the seminary uh, by the men he appointed, etc. But I remember him speaking in chapel, and he was way up in years, but still very articulate. <clears throat> and he had a deep, booming voice. And I said, men... He said, the word of God must prevail, right? And you just, you just kind of, you felt like you were there with Moses, right? As you're about to enter the promised land. <clears throat> well, Moses reminds not only them the significance of God's word. Another thing that you see throughout these two poems is he reminds the people of God's attributes and actions. He not only elevates the word of God in these final hours of his life, but also reminds the people of who God is which is so significant. Look at chapter 32 again. Let's go back to this song. <clears throat> it said in verse 2 of 32, my teaching will drop like the rain. My sayings will drip like the dew as rain drops upon the grass and showers upon new growth. You only need to spend some time in the desert to realize how significant that really is. <laughs> uh, there's a group that will be in Israel, this start will fly out Saturday. Um, they're not going to know the Israel that I usually see in June, which is dry, barren. At this time of the year, it's still a bit green. Um, but um, even then, you go down to the Negev, go into where this, the Israelites have wandered, you're not going to see rain. You won't, you know, this is a beautiful thing because it says, I will proclaim the name of the Lord. You must acknowledge the greatness of our God as the, for the rock, his work is perfect, which is so vastly different than the Israelites. What a contrast, right? Uh, he's the rock. Uh, they are so unstable, all right? He is reliable God who's never unjust. He's fair and upright. His people, however, have been unfaithful to him. They have not acted like his children. This is their sin. They are perverse and a deceitful generation. As I said, this song is not quite the upper that you would expect <laughs> as a rallying point in that regard. <clears throat> but it is when it comes to the things of the Lord. He says, listen, in this song, oops, let me go back. He says several things about God. And in your notes, I mentioned this contrast uh, that you see between Israel and between the Lord. In fact, as I mentioned in your notes, I said in verses 3 through 4, observe how Moses depicts the Lord. How does he do that? Help us out. What do you see here in the text? <clears throat> Obviously, the rock, which uh, later Paul will uh, appeal to and says Christ was the rock in the wilderness, right? When the Israelites wandered. He's perfect. What else? He's just. Yep. He's faithful upright. Such a contrast with the Israelites, right? Time and time again. And, and the sad part is Moses knows full well that their rebellion isn't going to stop when they get to the promised land. In fact, he tells them, you're going you're to meet some horrific events <laughs> because of your rebellion. So uh, yeah, anything else in the text there? They call him by name. Good. Yep. And you also see that he's like a father, right? They've not acted like his children, but he has acted like their father, which is key. In fact, at one point we saw on our journey, Jesus, the God is, is uh, referred to as, as a mother. 
Uh, now, careful with that. Uh, nowhere else do we see that in Scripture, but it was used uh, symbolically to say he's, he's, he's protected you. He's wooed you into his uh, being. Into, in, in fact, in verse 11, look at this, 32, 11, he says he's also like an eagle, which also was referred to. The eagle that stirs up his nest, that hovers over his young, so the Lord spreads out his wings and took him. He lifted him up to his pinions. The Lord alone was guiding him. No foreign God was with him. So you see God's care, God's protection. In the bottom of your notes, one commentator writes, the path lying ahead was not one of peaceful existence and quiet solitude. If we were to continue our journey and you know, you've read the text. You know what happens in Joshua and then worse yet in Judges, right? <clears throat> but it's not going to be, you know, just set your foot in the promised land and it's yours. They're, they're going to have to take it. They're going to have to fight, even at Jericho. I know you're just seven times around the city, but you still got to defeat the enemy when you go into the city, right? <clears throat> but it was not beset with every side with danger. Yet it is within this danger and war that Israel would find its safety because the path of danger was the path in which the presence and help of God would be found. This great leader, as he looks at his people, he says, listen, you got to remember the word of God and you got to remember who God is. Don't miss it. All right. And this is a man who has, has seen the glory of God. This is a man who's walked with God. Yeah, he has had his shortcomings. We've seen that. But he says, listen, these are the things you need to take note of in these final hours. Here's another thing that he calls to attention, and that is the importance of obedience. You would expect this, right? You, you talk about the word, you talk about God, and he says another thing is, and obviously that's the whole point of this song, is to remind them that they need to be obedient. For one thing, as, as you see in your notes, they were ob obligated to obey. You have entered this covenant, and some see this uh, poem as a covenantal lawsuit, so to speak, uh, legal terminology. I'm not sure I see it that. I see it more as a prophetic oracle of some things that are going to occur, but uh, you could debate that. <clears throat> and uh, also that they would face certain judgment if they failed to, to do so. Look at verses 39 through 43 of this, this song. 39 through uh, 43. He says, See now that I, indeed I am He, says the Lord. And there's no other God beside me. I kill and give life. I smash and I heal. And none can resist my power. He's, gonna, he's demonstrated that in Egypt. He's going to demonstrate it in Jericho with eight-story wall city that he's going to bring down very shortly. <clears throat> For I raise up my hand to heaven. It's a sign of oath the Lord's making. As surely as I live forever, I will sharpen my lightning-like sword, and my hand will grasp hold of the weapon of judgment. I will execute vengeance on my foes and repay those who hate me. Either you, you love me, you be blessed. If you hate me, I will curse you. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and the sword will devour flesh. Cry out, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge his servant's blood. Reminds you a little bit of Revelation where the martyrs around the throne saying, avenge our blood. But here, here you see very clearly, if you walk in obedience, you'll be blessed. If you, if you don't, 
you're going to be cursed. And this, <laughs> you know, I, I had this question there in your notes as well. How were these truths of these words been seen in their journey in the promised land? I mean, how, how have we seen this? In the light of obedience or disobedience. Give us an example. I'm sorry. Well, yes, the 12 spies. They, they didn't listen to the two that recommended going forward. And God said, fine, you're going to wander further. And this generation won't go in. The sin, what else? Think of the, the, the golden calf, right? What else have we seen? Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. Yeah, striking the rock, which comes very close to home for dear sweet Moses. Korah's rebellion. rebellion. All of these things, and and Moses saying, listen, let's recite this, as he he mentions this in the song, this is the vindication of the Lord, this is how he's going to operate. As he's handing this torch off to the Israelites, says, take heed. And by the way, Joshua's already been appointed. He was appointed uh, back in 31, chapter 31 of Deuteronomy. So the baton has been passed. These are just Moses' parting words. He's saying, take heed, be on guard. I mentioned in your notes, these final words of Moses were meant to serve as a serious determinant to future rebellion and apostasy. Sadly, Moses knew full well these these were a bit of hollow words because they're going to mess up. I mean, he, he just knows it. <laughs> He's been with them too long. <laughs> he knows. One other thing that we see in these final words is Moses accepts God's will. He's told them about, reminded them of the word. He's reminded them of who God is and who they are, and thus the need for obedience. But his final thing that I just comes screaming out of the text to me is Moses understands this is God's will, not only for the people, but for his own life. Look at chapter 34, verses 1 through 8. Again, there's so much we could look at, and I, I challenge you to, to look through the text more and read. But look at 34. <clears throat> then Moses ascended from the deserts of Moab or to Mount Nebo, in the summit of Pisgah, where it's opposite Jericho. The Lord showed him the whole land. He moves, the Lord moves from the north to the south counterclockwise. And it said, then the Lord said to him, this is the land I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God will keep his covenant with his people. Despite all that's going on, right? I will give it to your descendants. I've let you see it, but you will not cross over. Now, what we didn't see earlier in this text, it's already very clear. Moses knows he's not going. It says, so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him in the land of Moab near Beth but no one knows the exact burial place to this very day. It's a bit sad that the, the, the one who brought him out of the Exodus is not even buried in the promised land. He's buried in Moab, right? The home of Ruth. Moses was 120 years old, watch this, when he died, but his eyes were not dull and his uh, vitality, and nor had his vitality departed. The Israelites mourned for Moses in the deserts of Moab for 30 days, normally it's seven, so they extended it. And then the days of mourning for Moses ended. He may not have gotten a state funeral, but he got a divine funeral. <laughs> 
God, in his grace, it comes screaming out of the text, doesn't it? Um, he still allows Moses to see the land. And that's not forget, God could have, and probably, well, I shouldn't say should have, but he could have struck Moses uh, when Moses struck the rock twice. Yeah. What does it look like from this job? Well, you, <clears throat> the text says that he sees all of this territory, and I, I'm going to argue there had to have been some divine assistance because you cannot see that far. You can't see the Mediterranean from Pisgah. You can see way out, you can see up north, but all the way to Dan, all the way down, uh, no. So the Lord had to have assisted him. It's a beautiful view. Um, but uh, yes, Paul. And, then, and I'm sure that picture was from the traditional spot. We're not sure exactly where uh, the Israelites would have camped down below. Um, but I, I think there had to be some divine binoculars so that assisted in seeing. But it is a gorgeous view, and it, looks, it does look over into Israel. There's no doubt about that. Even, you know, uh, anywhere on that, that Moab, that ridge of Mount um, Nebo would have been the case. But as I mentioned there in your notes, uh, not once, not once in these latter chapters does Moses complain or debate God, which is amazing to me. He knew he blew it. He knew the consequences. He's a big boy. And God did not owe Moses an opportunity to see the land. But not only that, Let's don't miss this. There is that intimacy that God has with Moses, so much so that he personally buries Moses' body. All right? Isn't that, that is intriguing? When um, I mentioned that there in your notes as well, despite the judgment that was given, Moses still enjoyed intimacy with the Lord until the very end. And uh, you can't help but think about what a coincidence that one of the two Old Testament saints that are on the Mount of Transfiguration, one of them is Moses, right? Not because he represented the law, it's because he's one of the eschatological figures, one of the end time figures. And I think one of the witnesses in Revelation chapter 11 will resemble one like Moses. He plays a key role and Jesus will be described in mosaic terminology, bringing the people into a new exodus, a new covenant. And the writer of Hebrews highlights that as well. But here's this great stalwart of the faith, who, according to Hebrews 11, was looking for a, a city with a firm foundation that was looking beyond all that was seen here, right? And as he looked to his people in these final hours, he said, listen, there's a few things you need to be reminded of. And we, all of these reminders we've seen in our journey, one again is the importance of the Word of God. Don't miss it, Moses said. Don't miss who your God is that we serve. Don't, don't forget to be obedient. And in the process, God's will will be done. And, and we take heed and we do it. Well, so what? Thank you, Hophetus, for that history lesson. It was a bit of a blitzkrieg through the text. I know that. But let me tease out three things for us this morning. Number one, this is in your notes. The final chapters of Deuteronomy reminds us of the importance of the Word of God in our lives. 
uh, you're here this morning. I'm not, I'm preaching to the choir, but uh, I'm always amazed when I, I talk to believers and I, they haven't opened the word of God for devotions or, or just reading anything for months. I go, what? This song was supposed to be sung on a regular basis. Why? To keep it in front of them. I mentioned there in your notes, our present state and our future depends on the importance of the Word of God and our adherence to it. Psalm 119, turn to this text. It's a great psalm that rehearses the Word of God and the importance of the Word of God. Psalm 119, let's look at this, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law all day long. I meditate on it. Does that resonate with you? Your law makes me wiser than my enemies, for I'm always aware of it. That's the prayer that my wife and I have for, one of the prayers we have for our children. May they have wisdom beyond their years. Well, where does the wisdom come from here? From the Word, right? I even have more insight than all my teachers. I don't pray that for them, but anyway. No, uh, for I meditate on your rules. I am more discerning than the older men, for I observe your precepts. Verse 102, I do not turn aside from your regulations, for you teach me. Your words are tastier in my mouth than honey. Your precepts give me discernment. There it is, right? The importance of the word of God. And one of the things, again, that Moses stresses is that, I mean, he does it by his actions where he places the law as well as as what he, he says to them. Here's another thing for us. It's there in your notes, despite the failures and judgments of the past. There's nothing you can do about the past. It's been done. If you've asked for forgiveness, it's done. That albatross, it's been slain. It's buried in the backyard. We need to be like Moses and seek to glorify the Lord now and in the future. Moses didn't die a bitter old man. The text tells us his eyesight was still strong. He, he still had all his capabilities. Which is also interesting, by the way, because it tells us, no, he could have kept on going. But God had stated, you're coming home. You're done. John 21 is one of my favorite passages in all of the New Testament. And I'm looking forward to our study of John. Uh, You know the scene, I suspect. It's a bit of a a post-log to this narrative in many ways, it doesn't seem to fit because in, you, you got the whole events with Christ and his resurrection. Then 21, you have Peter who decides to go fishing at night. And night in John's gospel is very significant. It's the realm of unbelief. I think Peter thought he was done. After all, Judas hung himself. Peter should have done the same. He was through. He denied his Savior, right? And you know the scene in Jesus meets them, and in fact, Peter reminds me of a little kid who's been caught and has been, you know, he knows he's blown it in the past because, you know, yes, Jesus, what do you need? You know, it brings a whole net of fish, and it's a good thing the text is inspired, or I wouldn't have believed our fishermen. It was 153 large fish, but oh well. All right. And verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these do? He's not talking about the disciples. Never are we compared to our love for Christ versus somebody else. It's in the neuter tense. He's talking about the fish, the industry. I called you to be fishers of men, not of fish. What are you doing? 
Well, what's he doing is he thinks he's through because he blew it in the past. I don't know about you, but if you've got a past that says, oh, uh, Lord can't use me, uh, you know, uh, I've messed up here, here, and here. Oh, look at Peter. Because what does Jesus say to him? Feed my lambs. Who gives the first sermon in the early church, the least one that's recorded? Peter. Who leads, brings the gospel to not only the Jews, but to the Gentiles? Peter. Right? Don't, don't miss it. It's key here as we look at this. And yeah, Moses blew it. He didn't get to go to the promised land. But you want to talk about finishing well. <laughs> that's finishing well into Deuteronomy. Exalting the name of the Lord and saying, I praise him. And that could have been a whole different story if he wanted to. He could have been licking his wounds and saying, this is a real bummer. I put up with you guys for so long and I don't get to go in? This, is, this isn't right. But, he, you know, you don't see that. He's like, Lord, I honor you. Finally, I'm starting to preach, so I'll move. Our needs need to foster, our lives need to foster in others a passion to serve God. That's what I love about Moses. Examine your checkbook and your calendar to see how you're doing. Because <laughs> the resources God's given you, how are you utilizing that to, to build into other people's lives? Especially, I know some guys who retire and they spend all their time out on a golf course. There's nothing wrong with golfing, so they say. <laughs> um, there's nothing wrong with golfing. But if that's all you're doing, uh, there's a world going to hell, folks, you know. Uh, we've got people hurting all around us. You can use the golf course to minister. I know that. You can take guys out and spend time with them. Yay. But how are you doing in fostering a passion in others to serve Christ? Uh, Moses was doing that at the very end. Look at 2 Corinthians, uh, a letter written to a church that has been a bit of a thorn in Paul's side. 2 Corinthians 9 uh, Paul has two prongs of his ministry. One is the gospel. The other is providing uh, financial support for those back in Jerusalem who are suffering. In chapter 9, verse 11, he's thanking the Corinthians for their financial gift. And this is a loaded, I mean, this town is loaded. Corinth is very, very wealthy. And they can give. He said, you will be enriched in every way so that you may be generous on every occasion. What is producing through us thanksgiving to God. So their actions result in the apostle praising the Lord, but look what else. Because the service of this ministry is not only providing for the needs of the saints, it's also overflowing with many thanks to God. I mean, by them doing this, they're blessing others, and others are then in turn blessing the Lord. Through the evidence of this service, they will glorify God because of your obedience. Wow. Isn't that great? Your actions have resulted in others glorifying Him. And I look across this room, and I've seen uh, several of you who've given uh, not just money, but time. And, you're, and sometimes time is far more valuable than money. <laughs> You've given your resources, and I've watched how that's worked. Keep it up. Keep it up. And that's, uh, as I look at what Moses is doing in these final hours, it's a reminder, wow, let's don't wait until we're on our deathbed. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm going to change the will. No, let's do it now, Right? That serve as a conduit of God's blessing and encouraging others. Questions or comments on the text? Yeah, Paul? Well, things I find very 
no fear in, in death. Yeah, I, in fact, John Knox, the quote on the next page at the bottom, live in Christ and the flesh need not fear death. So thanks for cueing me to my next note point. You're right. Uh, we, we don't have to fear death. Um, it's in the Lord's hands. Psalm 90 is a prayer of Moses. Did you know some of our Psalms aren't written by David? And one of them is written by Moses. And that's Psalm 90. At least it's ascribed to him. And I thought we'd do a couple fun things and just wrapping our time together. That's, that, can we read this together collectively? Let's read this. I've got it in your, in your notes. That way we all have the same version. But that's, let's read this together. Psalm 90 verses 12 through 17. So teach us to count our days that we may gain a wise heart. Turn, O Lord, how long? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love so that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad as many days as you have afflicted us and as many years as we have been let your work be manifest to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and prosper for us the work of our hands. Oh, prosper the work of our hands. Isn't that a great prayer? Teach us to count our days that we may gain a wise heart. That's what I think of as I look at Moses in these parting two poems that he gives, the Song of Moses, and then the next, a reminder. Well, we've, we've done this several times. We've closed out our time together with the doxology. Just a reminder that we will be looking at 2 Timothy starting in April. I've titled it, Serving as a Soldier of Jesus Christ, Lessons from 2 Timothy. So we're going to be walking through that book uh, verse by verse. We might condense a couple sections. It's, it's a little meaty for five weeks, but we're, we're going to move through it uh, and looking at 2 Timothy. Well, we have this room for some time, so don't feel you need to leave. But I think we should stand and sing the doxology. Ron, you're our singer. So will you start us off on a pitch? If, if you need the words, they're in your notes, but uh, Ron, would you lead us?